All right, hello, Steven. So I uh, just want to say thank you uh, for coming to the show. And uh, you know, we know each other for a long time since the college days, right, at Stanford. Yeah. And then I know you have crazy stories. Uh, we study uh, electrical engineering and you went to strategic <laughs> consulting. And then later on, now it's doing blockchain. So uh, a lot of twists and turns. And But uh, to start off, do you mind kind of share with us a little bit about your story and journey and how you became uh, the CEO of Ter Terexa? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me on your uh, show, Tank, Tank Talks, right? <laughs> catchy yeah. name <laughs> catchy name catchy name yeah um yeah i mean it's uh it's been an interesting journey yeah so um so yeah i, I think i think my path towards blockchain is kind of a long and arduous one and uh i first sort of heard about bitcoin in 2013 from uh bobby d i don't know if you know bobby he was a few years ahead of us he started i, know, I don't do you know Charlie D, the the guy who started Litecoin? Uh, no, I don't think no. I'm as social as you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he like Bobby is his brother. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so he started this exchange in China and and told like all the Stanford um, people about it. And that's for, when I first heard about Bitcoin was back in like 2013. So it was kind of interesting. Didn't quite get it. You know, thought it was interesting, but didn't get it. And then, um, uh, and you know Alex Liu, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, you know Alex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He he was E, so we all knew him. So, um, so he told, he started telling me about um, Ethereum, I think, back in 2015. So he started a blockchain company in Taiwan too. So, so I started looking at into it and still didn't quite get it. And I think the third time was uh, it was uh, Jembo, right? We know yes. Jembo. Yeah. So he told me he quit his job to uh, start doing full-time, uh, you know, um, think blockchain back in 2017. So so he started telling me more about it. And I think a third time I sort of really, really got it, right? It took, took like six years for me to, or four years, I think, for me to really get it. And um, and then that's when I decided to quit my job as well to uh, to actually, you know, start doing something in, uh, in blockchain. And I think what really got me interested in this uh, in this area um, is this idea that decentralization could be used to make things trustworthy, right? Things that are otherwise not trustworthy before could be made trustworthy through decentralization. And the concept is actually very simple, is that if you're the sole provider of a service or information or data or whatever, then people can always be suspicious of your motivations, right? Are you doing something weird with the data? Are you motivated to change it? Are you motivated to cheat? And as we've seen before in this world, I mean, people do cheat, right? They do all sorts of things that might not be to the benefit of their users. So um, decentralization basically creates like a large network of anonymous node operators that, that you know, run some sort of application logic, right? Um, and each one of them by themselves are, you know, it's very high, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to bribe like the vast majority of them to do one thing, right? Because most of them just don't even care about you or anything you do, you know, because <laughs> your traffic is such a small portion of the overall traffic. So it's it's that part of it makes, I think, the logic or the, the transparent logic and the workings and the processes um, that actually happen on a decentralized network much more trustworthy. The output becomes much more trustworthy because the processes are transparent. And it's inherently just a lot more difficult to, I think, you know, bribe people to do bad things. So, so yeah, I mean, I thought now was very interesting because I think if you start trusting uh, processes and data and a lot more, then you can start automating things a lot more, right? So we're always, I mean, as an engineer, we're always looking for ways to make things faster and better, right? So if you're able to trust the underlying data, you're able to trust the underlying processes, 
then you're able to automate things a lot more and take you know humans out of the equation a lot you know a lot more a lot easier. So you know it could create it could just create a lot of efficiency. So that's what really you know made me think, hey, this is this is a very very interesting area to look into because because trust is not something that people think about typically, right? I mean, if you look at business schools, right, like you know people like the idea of an MBA didn't really exist until like you know like a few decades ago and. The reason why they started emerging is because corporations started measuring things, right? They started measuring, you know, KPIs, you know, all, all these like processes and, you know, setting quotas, setting targets. And once they start measuring things, things start improving. And trust is not something that people measure, right? People don't measure the cost of trust. Um, and the cost is, 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 is tremendous. It's, it's huge. Like, you know, the kind of systems that we put in place and the effort and resources we actually put in to actually make sure things are trustworthy. We have legal frameworks, social frameworks. We have large institutional processes all put in place to make sure things are trustworthy. And we don't think about that. I mean, a lot of times we just walk around and we don't even think about that. We live in a world expecting things to be correct <laughs> um, when a lot of effort have, have been put into place to make sure that they are correct. So, so I think this idea of being able to make trust a lot more efficient, right, to, to guarantee the same amount of trust but do it at like a fraction of the resources, I think, um, and make it much faster. That's very interesting. This I, I honestly still think that this is the next frontier, right, of, of how we can, you know, sort of really accelerate um, our civilization, you know, quite frankly. So that's that's really what got me into blockchain. I think it's um, <laughs> it's not what you hear typically in the news today, right, which is all speculation and whatever <laughs> scams but uh but i think inherently it's it's really about trust it's the decentralization you know make things um can engender the same amount of trust uh in an automated and, and much more cost-effective way yeah. so so i think you and i know that blockchain is not the same as cryptocurrencies and uh, but for those uh, who are not familiar with blockchain can you actually explain what blockchain is and how does it kind of decentralize trust yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So, so at a at a high level, I think cryptocurrency is a application of blockchain technology, right? And I would say that blockchain technology is one way to achieve decentralization. There are lots of different ways to achieve decentralization, but blockchain seems to be like currently, I I think like sort of a very interesting and very good technical way to achieve decentralization. So, um, how does that? How does it make how, do, how How does it make things trustworthy, right? So. So if you if you if you think about I mean if you if you if you think about like uh, for example if you if you think about like a like a website right and, and you like you know you Harrison tell the website like you know uh, you give it a number like one right and then and then and then I and then and I and then I I go to the website and I say well what did Harrison tell you and the website said oh yeah Harrison said two and I'm like okay I mean I don't know right I have, I have no idea I have no idea whether or not it's right. I have no idea whether or not it's wrong. And uh, maybe a third guy, you know, I don't know, maybe Andy paid the website to say Harrison said too. I don't know. I have no idea what's, what is happening, right? Um, and this happens a lot, right? I mean, if you go to something like a Facebook, um, if you run an ad on Facebook, it is, it is quite ridiculous, actually, if you think about it. Um, Facebook sets the price, and then uh, you pay them some money, and it does some things. And how do you know whether or not those things are done? Well, Facebook tells you whether or not they're done, right? And then you're like, oh, okay. I guess that's true. <laughs> you, have, you have no idea. I mean, you just have no idea whether or not it's true or not. And then you don't really have a choice because it's a centralized platform. So so you have all these instances in which you're always sort of like, well, I'm not really sure whether or not this is true um, because the entity that's actually telling me this information could cheat, 
Now, I'm not saying they are cheating, although most of the time they are, but they could cheat, and then there's nothing I can do about it, and I wouldn't even know if they're cheating, right? It, it's it's very it's a, it's a very strange system that, that actually we we uh, that, that we have today that most of the processes and platforms and application and logic that we have are actually centralized in this way. Um, so how does decentralization help, right? So right now what you have is sort of a, a system where um, instead of one company or you know controlling like a single entity that tells you what's true. Um, maybe you have a hundred identical companies or identical systems doing the same thing, right? Or or they're randomly selected to do something, right? And you never know ahead of time uh, who is chosen to do what, right? So um so then there's it becomes very difficult for them to cheat, right? So you you putting some inputs and you have a fixed set of logic that you know that processes the input and gives you an output, right? Um, and uh, and everything is auditable, and every single process is verifiable by everyone else on the network. And if and if they find that the outputs don't correspond to the input, they will reject it, right? So so that's that's what decentralization is. It's basically, you know, you take something that only one person does or one entity does, and you just spread it out <laughs> to hundreds or thousands of different entities, and they're randomly selected to do the same thing, and and they're verified by everyone else on the network. Um, so. So that makes things a lot more trustworthy because it's a lot harder to cheat. Um, and in a lot of in a lot of times, there are financial incentives actually built into the network for people to not cheat, right? Actually, we've we've also seen um, we've also seen um, financial mechanisms that are built into some of these uh, decentralized networks in which other people can challenge the results of uh, of specific nodes. Like let's say like you know one node or three nodes are randomly selected to to process something, right, to calculate a number, you know, calculate an accounting browse sheet or something like that. And then, and then, um, the you know, another three nodes come by and say, hey, I think what you did is wrong. Uh, we're going to challenge you, right, and we're going to put money up, right, <laughs> to say that you're wrong, right. Let's say if we put a hundred bucks up and say we're wrong. And and then, um, and then we're going to send this to the rest of the network, right. We're going to bring another 20 nodes to come in and randomly select it uh, to see if it's right. And they come in and say, all right, the challengers are right. So the guys that processed the original three, they're punished. Like they, a hundred bucks gets deducted from them. It goes to the battery charge. So the challengers just won a hundred bucks for challenging. So there are lots of interesting ways that, you know, just, by decentralizing the processes, you get a lot of guarantees, and you can also build in financial incentives to incentivize people to uh, report malicious behavior, incorrect behavior, right? So decentralized networks are very good at making sure people cannot cheat. So that's that's really 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 interesting. Now, when you when you mention cryptocurrency, you know, cryptocurrency is interesting because it, it's really sort of a decentralized accounting, right? Because what is what is currency or money anyway? It's really a ledger, right? Of like you know, you have this much money, you have that much money, you know, you gave that person that much money. I mean, that's that's really what a that's really what a currency is at the end of the day. It's it's, it's just a, like a, like a ledger. So um so what this is why like a lot of times uh, blockchain is also called decentralized ledger technology um because it's it's basically decentralized accounting right so that is basically decentralization being used for accounting right so that's that's how you get cryptocurrencies um and 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 i really want to emphasize that cryptocurrency is just one application 
out of many, many different applications that could be used for decentralization. Um, it does have a lot of interesting properties. I think the first and foremost interesting property of cryptocurrencies, or actually decentralized systems in general, I think is, uh, is uh, censorship resistance, right? So basically these systems, um, on top of being very hard to cheat, right, in the system where you're making it almost impossible to cheat, um, they're almost impossible to shut down, right? So I think we've seen a lot of, um, and uh, and this is uh, we, we we've seen a lot of places in which, you know, local governments or um, or or corporations or whomever maybe you know don't like what they're seeing right in these networks. They don't they don't like networks that they can't control, and they arrested all the coders in their country, put them in jail, and tell them like we're not going to let you out until you shut it down. And the coders are like, you can. Even if you kill us, we can't shut it down. It's not possible to shut it down, right? I mean, it's just, how are we going to, we don't even know who the people that are running the rest of the network is, right? Um, so that's that's something that's also very interesting. So I think that's something that captures a lot of a lot of the imagination um, in, within, I think, the cryptocurrency communities is this idea that you have this autonomous network that that just works. And um, and it's and it's very resistant to interference, outside interference um, from companies, from individuals, from governments, from whomever. And it's something that just sort of works on its own. Um, that's that's very appealing because it's it it, it acts as a very consistent anchor, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so lot, lots of places in the world are very unstable. Right? They're looking for some source of stability. I think you and I are pretty lucky to live in pretty stable place, but I think. I always say the vast majority of the rest of the world are are not like this. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. Like I think some parts of Africa, like Zimbabwe, they have crazy inflations, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, like this is a great solution for them. So, um, other than like decentralized accounting or decentralized finance, so, like what are the other uh, market use cases uh, that decentralized uh, distributed ledger technologies like blo blockchain can actually help yeah yeah that's that's really great so i would uh i would say that the types of applications that we've been looking at have all been non-financial driven so we we firmly believe that finance is a <laughs> like a tiny speck um within the whole universe of potential applications for decentralization so so let's say i mean i'll, I'll just come i'll just go you know backwards in time right the, the the application that we're currently working on right now is an application that helps uh web3 projects run automated social campaigns, right? So so the pain point here is really, it's really obvious is that as soon as you run a social campaign <clears throat> in which you incentivize your community members to spread the word about something, that's usually what social campaigns are meant to do is raise awareness and to expand the reach of your community. Um, and the way to do it is you incentivize them to do it, right? You either, you know, people either give, you know, give out rewards or whatever ways that they do it. And um, what usually happens is that 99% of the rewards go to spammers and bots. Right? They're not people that are actually doing, they're not even people most of the time, right? And and when they are people, they're sort of like bounty hunters who don't really care about anything. You know, today they're talking about your project in Web3, tomorrow they're talking about cats, you know, whatever. I mean, they, they don't really care. So these are not really people, uh, and definitely not robots that you want to be participating in your social campaigns. And, and hitherto today, I mean, there hasn't really been a good solution. People either um, run it and just know that they're going to waste 99% of their funds 
um, <laughs> or or they hire like a large team of people to and this I, I'm not making this up is that is that all the projects seem to be doing this um, and uh, they hire like a large team of people to manually examine every single submission uh, people are making they're saying I said something in this group I brought these people in I can prove that they're real and they're manually like auditing every single thing and the cost is, is astronomical and it's not feasible um, for especially for smaller projects you actually build their community this way so the thing that what we're doing is we're saying, well, fundamental to this problem is that the social data um, that's actually being used to, uh, to generate rewards is not trusted. <laughs> it's, it's, it's either fake, it's bot-driven, it's whatever. You, don't, you can't trust that data. Um, so because you can't trust the data, you can't automate it, right? So, so, we, so we're building a decentralized network on top of the Terrasset blockchain, layer one blockchain, um, that captures uh, social data right now from from Telegram, which is a very large social network uh, when it comes to uh, discussions about Web3 and, and crypto. And um, and we're monitoring over 10,000 groups automatically, and we're seeing what people are saying. And, you know, this these are public groups, right? So they're not like private groups that we're invading people's privacy. These are groups that anybody can join. So um, so in order to participate in a campaign, someone all someone has to do is to say something in the group related to the specific project and whatever it is that they, they want to um, they want to raise awareness about right and uh, and, the, and the platform will automatically capture all this data and it will filter out automatically um, you know spam it will filter out bots um, and then it will calculate um, it will make a really good estimation a conservative estimation of impressions which is reach and it will calculate basically who's contributed how much and then automatically assign rewards. Right? And these rewards are given out um, when, when these users come to the platform to claim their rewards, um, proving their identity through authentication through their Telegram account and associating them with you know, a, uh, a, a wallet. So, so this, is, this is an example of, of how you can actually run social campaigns automatically. Um, you know, without uh, and 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 the reason why you can run it automatically is because now you trust the underlying data. It's been automatically filtered out, but it's not being filtered out by one person or one company. It's being filtered out by a network um, of uh, of nodes that are you know randomly selected to perform these things. So that's why it can be automated. So this is one area where I think it's actually very very interesting. Um, another another area which is something that we've been very passionate about. Um, and you and I we both studied hardware, right? And as we know, hardware is slow. It's very slow. It's like a hundred times slower than software. Um, so, but I, I, I think hardware is fundamentally a lot more interesting. Um, I think than pure software. It's just unfortunately it's very slow. But um, I, I, I always thought that actually machines could benefit from blockchain a lot better than humans could. Um, and I can talk to you for two more hours on why that is. But but machines have no identity. They have. They have no own. They have no concept ownership um, of, of anything, right? I mean, it's 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 very and and then they don't forget things like humans do. Humans can't remember secret keys, machines can't, um, and they don't forget it. <laughs> so um, so I think blockchain is actually a really good way to confer upon machines identity and the ability to own property and ability to transact to become fully to become economic entities, right? Right now they're just kind of like our you know, machines are are you know, human slaves, right? And we just tell them to do whatever and they do whatever. Uh, they don't really make any decisions on their own. So anyway, so one one project that we actually started working on um, that unfortunately was the, our partner company was kind of destroyed by the pandemic, but but it's uh, it's this Japanese company that was renting out um, arcade machines. And uh, and they, um, you know, they were, they were doing really well in Japan for like 
you know, 40 years. And um, and then they started expanding to uh, to East China, uh, East Asia, right? China, like Southeast China, uh, so, uh, South Southeast Asia. And they were doing really well, lots of orders. Um, but the problem with them is that they, um, you know, they, they work on a very interesting model. They work on a, um, they work on a leasing model, right? A profit sharing leasing model. So basically the machine sits in your retail shop and, you know, we split however much it earns, right? So here comes the problem. How do you know how much it's earning? <laughs> at the end of the month, you call the guys like, "How much did they earn?" It's like, "Oh, bad month, only fifty bucks." And you're like, "You know, wait a minute, <laughs> it doesn't doesn't make sense, right? Like, how do I know you're telling me the truth?" So, um, so so then they said, "Okay, well, let's install sensors, right? So we can." figure out, estimate how much you're earning. And then the shop owners, the, their leasing partners are unhappy because they said, well, what if, so whenever basically my accounting doesn't match with the sensors, like I'm wrong, like, I mean, how, how do I know your sensors are right? right? I mean, how, maybe maybe you're cheating, right, with your sensors. I mean, how, how do I know? So, okay, so then, so then they're running into this huge problem. They have all these orders, but but they can't fill them because they, they feel like either they get cheated or the other guy gets cheated. And then they said, well, what if we charge a flat fee, right? Well, if we charge a flat fee, uh, the return on capital is very poor, right? And especially when they have new clients in new markets, you know, they're you know these new customers aren't willing to pay a very high fee, right? Because it's um, it's supposedly unproven, right? No one wants to take the upfront risk. So so lots of problems, right? So we said, okay, well, how about how about we do this, right? Why don't we why don't we? The sensor was a good idea, but the problem here is that the sensor data can't be trusted, right? People don't trust it because who's making the sensor, right? Like you know who's controlling it. Um, and uh, we said that. So the the goal here is to make the sensor data trustworthy by everybody. So in addition to sensor collecting the data, sending it to a central database, it does all that, right? That's fine. What in addition, what it does is that every you know every few hours or every day. It takes all the data that it collected in the previous period, um, turns it into a hash, and then signs it, right, with the signature, and it puts that signature and the hash into the blockchain, and that's it. So what that's doing is that it's creating an audit trail, right? Mm -hmm. So, so if somebody wants to say, um, wait a minute, you know, like I don't believe this data. Well, okay, you can go back and look at the raw data and trace the raw data back onto the blockchain. You can hash it yourself and trace that back onto the blockchain to see entries of the audit trail. So you know exactly where each piece of the data comes from. It comes from which machine, when, and you know it's coming from that machine because it has the signature and the signature can be forged because there are these secure elements embedded into the chips um, that, are, uh, that, are, that are generating the signatures. And secure elements are all on credit cards or I mean, they're everywhere, right? So they're very mature technology. So that solves this problem of, you know, sort of them not being able to do a lot of business or scale their business because people don't trust the sensor data. Um, and, and, it, and it solves another interesting problem too in, in the process that we started talking to some of these large retailers. Um, this Japanese retailer is actually their biggest customer in, um, <clears throat> in China. They have over 120 locations in China. Lots of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of these gaming machines. And these, re and these retailers executives, um, they said that, you know, they're very worried that their employees are cheating them. Okay, they said that they said that every month they get these data reporting up, and it's like the store level reports up to the city level, reports up to the provincial level, regional level, headquarters, and the data always looks suspicious. And they will ask for questions, and you know, a month later they get more questions. Oh, that machine was broken. You know, it didn't really work. <coughs> or like, <clears throat> you know, we had a bad weekend. Blah blah blah. So all kinds of excuses, which cannot be verified, <laughs> right? So, so they get more and more suspicious and they said, <clears throat> and they said, this is actually really bad because it impedes their expansion uh, speed because if they don't trust their team, 
how can you expand, right? So, so basically, it's sort of lack of trust for the data starts percolating and spreading to lack of trust for people, right? And then you start creating lack of trust in the organization, and they said this is holding us back um, from expanding very quickly. So, so you start seeing like once you start talking about this idea for trust. Um, you know, it has real economic costs, right? Um, and it has real economic opportunity costs in addition to real costs of all this verification, all this other kind of thing. So it ha also has tremendous opportunity costs. So I think this is another this is another area where decentralization by making data trustworthy can actually solve a lot of problems and create actual real economic value. Um, so wait, these just are- to, yeah. Just to clarify one thing, like what's written on chain? Because uh, as we know, like, I think distributed ledgers, right? Uh, they they build trust through uh, transparency in data, like basically making these data public, right? So for example, uh, from for, for, for Bitcoin, from this wallet to wall that wallet, the amount transfer is actually public, right? So yeah. I would imagine sometimes uh, the companies don't want the sensor data to be public. Yeah, right? yeah. So, That's so what's really written on chain? That's a really good question. So what's written on chain um, is pretty simple. It's just a hash. And a signature, right? <clears throat> and a hash and a signature, if I showed you a hash and a signature, it looks like garbage to you, right? Because you don't know what it is, right? Like without the original raw data, that hash is useless to you. And the signature is just a signature. You don't really know what it is. And I mean, if you if you if you don't know that this belongs to a machine or a, you know, whatever, then you, you have no idea what it is, right? Um, so so it's fine that all this is visible to everybody else because they can download it all they want. It, it's not, it's not going to tell them anything. Um, so this is actually very, it's, it's, it's called a, I mean, I think there's a, there's a phrase for it. It's like security through obscurity. Um, basically, yes, I can show it all to you, but you don't know what it is. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. So that, that's very, it's very, very important because obviously, like you said, companies don't really want people to, you know, know about their operation. Now, of course, there are ways where you can <clears throat> infer, right? Like, well, I can sort of tell patterns, like, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're doing this, maybe they're doing that. I don't know. But um, you can all, you can also um, intentionally start submitting, you know, a noise, right, into, into the blockchain to throw your competitors off. I mean, that's not very hard to do either. So, um, so it's, it's pretty, it's pretty secure. Yeah. And so how, how's the, because there are a lot of blockchain uh, and distributed ledgers out there, right? There's obviously the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then there's uh, Solana, Cardado. So how does the uh, Terexa different, right? Is it the market use cases that you're focused on that makes Terexa different or is it the technology or is it both? Yeah, I think it's both. So, um, I think we just mentioned a few use cases, which, as you can probably tell, is very different than, than what other people use blockchain for. Um, so we're, um, I think, on the technological side, um, we're also pretty differentiated. I think we have a um, we have a uh, architecture and a consensus algorithm that allows us to uh, scale the uh, throughput of the entire network without really sacrificing uh, security or decentralization. All right. So this is there's this very famous. Um, blockchain trilemma, I think, posed by uh, Vitalik Buterin, um, to create one of the leading founders of uh, Ethereum, who said that you know it's very difficult to, you know, to sort of you know get <laughs> get get your cake and eat it too type of thing. That like you can't get everything, you can't get all three together. Um, uh, you can't get throughput, which is uh, how much uh, the speed and and the volume, uh, uh, decentralization and security. You can't get all three together, right? Um, and if you start really pushing the boundary of one 
attribute, you start sacrificing the other attributes. Well, I think we we have an architecture in which that that trade off doesn't really need to made be made, or it, 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 it's it's it, you need to make it at a much 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 later date. So whereas something like Ethereum can do something like you know 15 you know transactions per second, um, we're able to do um, I think around 5,000 transactions per second, um, and then we're and then we're able to scale that to a few tens of thousands of transactions per second without sacrificing any um, decentralization or security. So it's actually it's actually just a very very solid piece of technology um so um it has very fast confirmation times um you know the uh, your transactions are included inside the blockchain um under a second so it's basically instant inclusion as soon as you send the transaction in it's included in a block almost instantly and once it's including the block unless you personally screwed up in which that's your own fault. <laughs> if you didn't screw up, then it's guaranteed um, to make it into the blockchain. Whereas in something like Ethereum or Bitcoin, uh, it's not really guaranteed to make it, you know, um, and uh, because the, the inclusion time takes a really, really, really long time. Um, and you, you, you have to wait a long time to find out whether or not you made it or not. So there are lots of very interesting features, I think, from a technological perspective, um, you know, much faster with no sacrifice of security or, um, or or decentralization. I mean, you can run one of these these nodes for like, I don't know, 30, 40 bucks a month. So it's not really like that expensive to run either. If you, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not gonna say who, but if you look at a lot of these other chains that are out there, it takes like thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to run one of their nodes. It's it's like, you know, if, you, if it's that expensive to run a node, that means people, you know, it means not everyone can run a node, right? Only like rich people or whatever, people who are hugely technically sophisticated can run nodes. And that's, that I think um, uh, undermines the decentralization aspect. And you want to make it as easy to run. Um, anybody can run it, even without any sort of, you know, technical uh, background. And it's very cheap to run, right? And you really want to make sure that, you know, it's broadly accessible. So, so yeah, so I think um, we do have a lot of very interesting technical uh, innovations uh, within our Terraxa layer one. Um, on top of, you know, the fact that we are focusing on an entirely different class of applications, non-financial applications, which really tries to make sure we leverage uh, the power of decentralization to make trust, uh, to, to make data very trustworthy and to make sure that we can automate processes because of that. Yeah. So I, I heard that uh, you guys recently completed, uh, completed a successful test net. So, so what are the biggest learnings from it? And also, uh, what are the next steps? Yeah, so we had a testnet um, for a while, but um, I think the network really started to stabilize um, towards the end of last year. Um, so where we don't have like weird crashes and burns on the network anymore. And um, so I think <laughs> learnings. Um, well, there there's several interesting things about building a blockchain network, right? The first one is that the blockchain, you know, in Silicon Valley, everyone, there's a saying like kind of, you know, um, fail fast, fail forward, you know, like, you know, you got to make failures, you know, to, to learn, uh, move fast, break things and stuff like that, right? So in blockchain, you can't move fast and break things. It, that doesn't work, like, because if you break things, people lose their money, right? Um, it's uh, it's not a move fast, break things kind of thing. So um, so that's that's kind of lesson number one is that there are a lot of, I think, teams out there that, that try to follow the Silicon Valley uh, kind of like the ethos, which which is fine for, you know, for, for things like, you know, like a photo app or something. <laughs> that's fine. Move fast and break things. Okay. What's the worst that can happen? You lose your photo or something. I don't know. But um, but um, but for for something like this, where people actually lose their money, that's that's not something that you can uh, you can afford to happen. So so you need to stress test. 
um, and uh, prioritize security and stability over everything else. Um, so, so it is really something that takes time and, uh, and it's not something that you can just rush through. I guess the second interesting thing that we learned is that um, because it's being run, the network is being run by lots of different people from all across the world, um, it's operating under a very um, heterogeneous environment. So it's not really a controllable environment. And it's very hard to replicate or reproduce bugs right so like our community members will report bugs and for the life of us this is really really hard to reproduce um, because they are in some whatever um, network conditions or something that's, that's creating these bugs so in a decentralized uh, kind of environment um, bugs are very hard to reproduce and they're very very difficult to uh, to discover um, I think ever since the second half of last year all the bugs that we've been um, finding have been these weird edge cases that only really happen like under like you know the moon has to be like this size and like you know you know the birds have to be chirping and then it happens you know like just very strange edge cases that it triggers specific bugs so uh, of course makes it even harder to reproduce um so it's it's very interesting so so that's uh these are some of the learnings that we have it's just that you know building a blockchain network is is uh is is completely non-trivial um it's uh it's not a break you know move fast and break things so you can't just like be here's an mvp you know, everyone use it put your money on it no can't do that you <laughs> have to test it for years and years before you can do that uh second it, it's very very difficult to find bugs um uh and uh, a lot of times uh, in addition to all of our you know building stress tests we sort of just have to sit around and wait to see <laughs> to see what goes wrong um uh, because we've already you know putting all the tests that we can think of and uh, the rest of it is sort of just you know luck uh, and then you run into a bug or whatever so it's very interesting i mean these are interesting engineering problems but um but yeah but uh different yeah, i think uh, like uh, ethereum took about five or six years to move from proof of work to proof of stake concept yeah. right yeah so it's like yeah it took them a long long time as well and and i'm curious like how, like for those who who are not familiar with uh this ecosystem like why would people run a node right or computing uh, cluster right to to run the Terexa software and also what's the incentives for them to get the updates right like uh, 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 get the updates from the latest patch or the latest uh, yeah you know yeah latest software update yeah these are pretty interesting questions I think I think in general um, people run nodes because um, well for I, I guess one of two reasons um, first reason is that they're they earn yields. I mean, they get paid to run these nodes, right? Um, uh, obviously, no one in the world does anything for free, or at least not sustainably, right? Uh, <laughs> ecosystems that are sustainable tend to be um, tend to people tend to profit from them. So people run nodes because they make money from them, right? So that's number one. That's actually very very simple. Um, node runners become they're compensated um, by the fees and a cut of the commission they charge um, from the from the people that delegate their their tokens over. So, um, so they, they actually make money. Um, so that's, that's reason number one. Uh, reason number two, I think um, there, there are a lot of people out there who are running nodes just because they believe in, the, you know, they believe in decentralization, right? So I think there, there's definitely a lot of mission or ideal driven people um, that, are, uh, that, are, um, you know, that are running these nodes and uh, people run it for fun because they believe in it, you know. So that's, that's another, another reason why people want to do it. Um, the, um, sorry, what was the second question that you asked? 
Yeah, like why why would they want to run the latest software update? Oh, like, for example, software. some people yeah. are still on like Windows XP, right? They haven't got <laughs> yeah, the yeah, latest yeah. Windows version. So what's the incentives to, to actually get the latest update? That's a really interesting question because because um, each node runner is independent, right? They they really make their own decisions, um, and uh, and so they can choose to run whatever version they would like to run, right? And and actually, we've seen this happen before on a large scale. So I think there have been several forks of Ethereum. The most famous one is probably when uh, I think this is twenty seventeen or something when. When uh, this is the first DAO that actually uh, is called a decentralized autonomous organization, so it's kind of like mm-hmm. running a company or you know running some kind of a project business venture over a decentralized network, right? So, so it was an investment fund, I think, and um, and that that project got hacked, and I think lots of money was stolen um, from the project. So at the time, Ethereum was still very new, and people were very upset about this this hack. And I think um, you know part of the network decided that they're going to uh, they're going to revert. They're going to change history. Right? They're just going to say we're going to change history and pretend like the previous X number of blocks did not happen. Right. So the hack gets reverted. It's basically like the bank telling you like, hey Harrison, guess what? You know the month of January didn't happen for you. So you, you, everything in your bank is going to change as if it were like December thirty first. Right. Like. You know, how would you feel about that, right? So, um, so obviously, some people felt it was good because it removed the hack. Uh, some people felt that this is not good because if somebody could do that, what does that say about the decentralization of this network, right? They said, well, that, that <laughs> it means that people can just do whatever they want. You know, they can just get together and be like, I don't like this transaction. Like, I don't like, I don't like Steven. Like, he's an asshole. Let's just revert all his transactions, right? I mean, you know, you can do stuff like that, right? So, so. So then you, you ended up with, I think, Ethereum Classic, and then you ended up with Ethereum, the current Ethereum. And the Ethereum Classic people basically disagreed and said, look, you know, it's kind of like you got hacked, you know, that's life, man. You know, you just got to deal with it, you know. <laughs> you know, so we, we're going to maintain this chain, and it's going to be like sort of, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be, it will preserve the hack, we're going to keep on moving forward. So the network does get split into different pieces, um, and then... Uh, and then that becomes actually pretty dangerous, right? Like sort of, um, you know, does um, does the network survive that, right? A lot of networks don't survive that. After a while, people start fighting each other and they dis- disagree, and the net and they, they 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 split even more, and eventually each network is so small it doesn't have, you know, sort of the the uh, enough uh, support and enough transactions or volume to really build that ecosystem, and people just abandon them. So that is a risk. Um, but ultimately, I think. What your original question is, well, why would someone, you know, kind of uh, run an update, right? So um, there, I think there, there are several reasons why they will want to do it. I mean, I think one reason is that, well, there are these, these updates, first of all, they're like, you know, if it's, a, if it's an update that fixes bugs and doesn't really kind of have these, um, you know, ideological differences or, um, or doesn't really change the economics of the system, then I don't really see why people wouldn't update right i mean so like we fix the bug that makes your node less likely to crash like great <laughs> why wouldn't you want it right um um and then uh and then uh and then but for for updates that sort of materially changes the economics of the ecosystem right like it changes the amount of money earned by the miners or the validators or it changes the yield or change the fee structure or whatever um then you're going to start having kind of problems or not problem potential problems right 
So this is why it's very important in a decentralized ecosystem that before implementing some change, you, you sort of try to figure out what everyone wants. And actually, we were just talking about this issue uh, like a few weeks ago internally on how we can best make sure that you know decisions that have material economic impacts are um, are sufficiently supported by the community and not just sort of like because we, we you know going forward um, we, you know it's we can't just sort of make changes whatever change we want we have to make sure that the community is okay with this so um, we look at like local you know local local elections local officials right like turnout rates like 10 percent right nobody cares right it's like dog catcher voting or something like nobody cares so um so so then you have to building these systems where sort of like you know we want a simple majority of outstanding you know sort of uh tokens in circulation if that fails then we do nothing <laughs> right we we just release this thing that we think is we put this version here you guys either want it or you don't right so that, that's kind of the thing so it's uh it's uh driving consensus is is pretty um it's a, I don't, I don't think it's a solved problem because it's more of a human problem than a technology problem. So, um, but yeah. So how's the, what's the Terexa community like? And philosophically, are you guys more of a decentralized maximus, maximalist? Like for example, earlier you talked about the Ethereum example. Like are you guys more on the side of, okay, the hack happens, but hey, that's just the nature of the, you know, de decentralized networks. Or are you guys more on the, uh, current Ethereum communities, like you know, not maximalist on the on the decentralization side. Yeah, we well, we haven't taken a vote on anything yet. Um, so I I, <laughs> I can't say I, I would speak for the entire community. Um, but I think myself and everyone on the de the development team. Um, so we we write the code. Um, I think we're sort of a you know kind of a you know we we need we need to preserve decentralization, right? So I think there was. A while ago, was it last year or the year before that? I don't remember exactly when, but there was a hack on one of these exchanges that listed um, the Terrasa token. And like a lot of token was stolen, right? And the hacker, I don't know, is moving the you know the tokens around. I don't really know. So so we um, you know we're we're, um, we're we're going to have a conversion event in which we convert what's on the ERC20 tokens on Ethereum, we're going to convert that into native Terrasa tokens on our own layer one network pretty soon. So I don't. I think we had a very brief discussion about this issue, and I don't think anybody on the team was like, well, let's reverse the hack or something. I mean, that's, well, first of all, it's, it's going to be very difficult to do that because so many transactions have happened afterwards. I don't even know how you would reverse it. Uh, second of all, I don't really believe in that. I was like, <laughs> like you, Mr. Exchange, you got hacked. That's kind of your fault. Um, and uh, we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna do this. It doesn't make doesn't really make a lot of sense. It, it, it happened, and so it happened, right? Um, so that's that's sort of how we feel. Yeah, I mean, you have to be committed to decentralization, or or you're not. I mean, that's that's. I I understand why like Ethereum made that decision back then because the hack was so big, like it was hundreds of millions of dollars, right? For us, obviously, it was not anywhere near that size, but. <laughs> but that that kind of a mistake or a hack could I, I can see that it could uh, really make people lose uh, lose interest. But but you know that was 2017, and since then, like I don't think anyone cares about like a hundred million dollar hack anymore because you know we have billion dollar hacks these days. Um, so people are like whatever, you know, uh, that's that's your loss. So so I think the community somehow has gotten a lot. The overall sort of you know crypto community has gotten a lot more resilient. Um, 
against sort of these kind of hacks and Ponzi's. Um, people are pissed about it, but I don't think anyone is sort of calling on the layer one uh, developers to like reverse it. I mean, maybe people are doing that, but it's not gaining any traction, right? Because anytime people have, you know, Ponzi scams, hacks, and whatever, I mean, if enough layer one validators decide that they want to roll it back, it could happen, right? It could happen, but I haven't seen any of that happening. Um, so I think the entire community overall has become pretty committed to this sort of, hey man, you're, you're in this game, right? And if you lose, that's, <laughs> you, you walk into this game, you know, with your eyes open. So that this is the risk that you, you agree to take upon yourself uh, to to to, uh, to to shoulder. So, so yeah, I think I think the entire community has gotten much more, um, you know, much more uh, decentralization kind of maximalist, like 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 you said. So how how do you get the community on board on the initiatives that you want to push, right? Because in traditional companies. Uh, like the CEO says, hey, you go do this, and more or less, uh, most people will say, okay, let's go ahead. But uh, yeah. in the in in the the new decentralized organizations, <laughs> it's a little bit different, right? So how, how do you get everyone aligned and move in the same direction? Well, since we haven't really had a vote yet, um, but that's coming up. I think after conversion, we we have several votes that we want we 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 have planned, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, since I haven't done it yet, <clears throat> I can't tell you how I'm how how I did it. But I think um, I think the way to do it is basically you know trying to um, trying to publicize the information as, as you know sort of uh, as as much as possible, making sure everyone who's at all paying any attention, and there are lots of people who are not paying attention, right? That anyone who's paying any attention at all will have no trouble spotting it, right? Making sure all your social is updating this, all your social groups are updating this. Um, so uh, maximum awareness, give plenty of lead time. And I think as the development team, we need to make sure that we we give a very thorough analysis, um, as unbiased as possible, um, on sort of the you know what are the pros and cons of voting yes or no on, on this, right? Like you know just give very very solid analysis on that, and hopefully back it up with you know quantitative data. Um, so that's 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 sort of the that's sort of the direct democracy side of the 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 the, the view, right? So. So, um, so uh, like we said, direct democracy always has a voter apathy problem. So cool. So, last question: Like uh, since 2013, when you first uh, get into what heard of blockchain, like uh, there has been two or three ups and downs and cycles, right? So, so how how, how do you build a sustainable business and and a sustainable community? And as we enter into, I would say, uh, uh, another crypto winter, how how what's your plan? in the emerging <laughs> yeah so these um it's very interesting like what what exactly is is like uh so our, our development team is we we don't we're not a profit-seeking like uh entity right we don't we, we don't have we don't earn money <laughs> we don't we don't earn income um so at some point the thing that i always joke about is the day that when nobody needs us anymore, when, when we all become unemployed, is the day that this ecosystem has become truly successful, right? I, I think I think that's sort of our goal is to make ourselves obsolete. Um, but anyway, that's sort of an aside. So um, I think uh, um, I think for us, in terms of our on the development team side, um, we need we need to make sure that we execute fast and we um, and we control our costs. I mean, just like any business, you hit your targets um, uh, quickly and then you. Uh, and do it as cheaply and, and as quickly as possible. So that's 
That's that's sort of the basics of a business. Um, but what makes an ecosystem survive is a little bit different than what makes a business survive. A business is sort of, you know, are you making more money than you're spending? That's you know, that then you're then you're doing okay, right? Um, but for an ecosystem, it's really about well, how much how much activity are are you engendering on the network, right? Are people using it, right? Um, so um, so that's actually the, the most important metric of success. So for us, um, what we need to do is to make sure that we um, present the best case possible uh, for our applications and our um, and our technology to attract as many people to uh, use and build on the platform as possible. Uh, it's not an easy task by any means. Um, I think, uh, but I think we're uh, we're in a good position to achieve that. Um, and of course, um, like you said, I think crypto is very famously cyclical, and its cycles are very brutal, right? I mean, when it's up, it's up by like a thousand times. When it's down, it's down by ninety nine point nine percent, right? I mean, I, I think it's very, very brutal. Um, so I think we just need to be make we just need to make sure that it doesn't matter if the market is up or down. Our goal is just always the same, right? It, we just have you know the goal is to drive activity, drive adoption. Um, and that's that's the only goal that we have. And the adoption activity we drive has to be sustainable adoption activity. There there are lots of projects in the space that are flashes in the pan, right? They're they're like world famous for like a month, and then and then nobody knows who they are anymore. Uh, that's obviously not what we're looking for. So we're looking to lay the foundation and do things. Um, and and there is a tremendous amount of noise. Anybody who is in this um, uh, in this in this space knows that the amount of noise is is amazing, and the pressure to actually you know, follow the latest meme, you know, it's, 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 it's huge. The community puts a huge amount of pressure because in any crypto community, I can guarantee 90% of them are going to be speculators, right? So there's going to be a lot of um, pressure to actually, you know, like, why are you talking about the latest meme? Like, you know, why don't you have a dog coin or whatever? I mean, just <coughs> all kinds of stuff, right? So, so you have to figure, you have to figure out, like, look, I mean, you have to, you have to be able to filter out that noise and say, look, we're, we have a vision, you know, we're, we're doing something that's, um, that's that's uh, with a primary aim to have sustainable adoption rather than kind of like you know we're going to be the hottest meme this week kind of thing. So, cool. So yeah, um, just keep your eyes on the goal, driving adoption, sustainable adoption, whether it's bull market or um, or bear market. You know, just just focus on what we're doing. Yeah. So cool. Well, thank you, thank you, Stephen. Yeah. It's always glad to ca catch up with you. And uh, if anyone wants to like learn more about Terexa, how do they uh, contact you? Uh, well, you can just go to our website, terasa.io. Um, all of our socials uh, channels are actually on the front page of the website. Um, you can check it out. Check us out on Twitter, um, on Discord, uh, in Telegram. Um, so yeah, drop on by. And uh, uh, me, I'm always hanging out in this group. So, <laughs> so nonstop. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Thanks. Thank a lot. you, Harrison. Yeah.